listening to the Quids Podcast, hosted by the Queer Community Collective. We are a not-for-profit operating in Vancouver, Canada, dedicated to building healthy, supportive, and inclusive community across Metro Vancouver. The QCC structures their community around events, education, visibility campaigns, small business initiatives, and peer support. We hope you enjoy this podcast episode. Please note, we often have heavy conversations around complex topics. We do our best to label the episodes with trigger warnings and content summaries. However, always proceed with caution. And we believe in two-way conversations. So if you have feedback for the hosts, or if something didn't resonate with you, we would love to hear about it. Thanks for listening. Who are you? Who am I? Um, Tell the people, who are you? Tell the people, who am I? Well, my name is Galen. You may have heard my voice on a couple of the other podcasts and we are, yeah, I don't know. What are your Such pronouns, a Galen? <laughs> um, my pronouns are they, them, Amazing. and I'm a queer person and queer barber in so-called Vancouver. Um, yeah. I also like to call myself an artist because I just do so many different art things. And I've just decided this year that I'm going to label myself an artist because all you need to do to be an artist is to call yourself an artist. You're not wrong. I love that. (laughs) I resonate with that tremendously, except I feel like I don't, in in the stage that I'm in right now, life-wise, I, there is not a lot of time for me to create. So I can't, I don't feel like I can call myself an artist, but I really resonate with that. Um, I feel like that art, the artist lifestyle, it just like ebbs and flows naturally. Yeah. You can't force creation anyways. Um, but the, I feel like the urge to do so and to the driving force of being an artist lives dormant within you at all times. Yeah, I agree. Um, who who are you thanks for asking my name is jordan (laughs) my pronouns are he and they and i am an enigma in so-called vancouver and i say that because i literally do everything and it feels like i'm blasting on like 16 and a half cylinders um i work with kids i work in retail i do some marketing work i um eat sleep breathe i'm queer and i'm here and i'm ready to instill fear (laughs) (laughs) and i'm ready to talk about what we're going to talk about for this episode and that's that on that that was amazing wow i need to get you to do my intros (laughs) you know what to be completely fair i have been re-listening to uh hood rat to head rap by erica hart and Mm. i am legitimately obsessed with their intros i mean their content Mm. phenomenal flawless thought-provoking you know gut laughter evoking um but But the intros though so fire i'm just like you wow wow shocked at every point and it's just so a little bit of what I brought to the table was inspired by by them. So I love that. If you have a chance, you should check them out. Uh, Hood Rat to Head Wrap, H-O-O-D-R-A-T to Head Wrap, H-E-A-D 
W-A-W-R-A-P by I Heart Erica. You're is the her, queen of the spelling bee. Yeah. Well, when you read it, <laughs> when you used to read a thesaurus as a kid, leisurely, that's, that's what you get. <laughs> that was so good. I want to see like little Jordan holding a giant thesaurus, just walking through the hallways of school, reading that. Didn't didn't walk with it. See, I that's the one thing that I was a little bit efficient about. I I lied to all my teachers and told them that I lost my textbook so I could get another one. And then I just kept all my textbooks in my locker and at home, so I'd never have to carry anything. Who are you? <laughs> Like you, like what business, business person galore or, or what? Like that sounds like a full like Ponzi scheme. <laughs> <laughs> I love that for you. Between that and your like rental library business, like you are a full on business child. Thank you. <laughs> I, I don't know what to say to that. So I'll just take it as a thanks. <laughs> I'm impressed. I'm just, I'm very, I'm very impressed. I just wanted to, you know what, you know what inspired that though, is the wild anomaly that the teachers are like the structure, the school structure will give students three minutes to get from one class to another with their locker in the complete opposite direction. I'm like, you, you don't want me to walk, you don't want me to run through the halls yet. You want me to make it like 300 yards in 180 seconds. Like, doesn't sound plausible like how i don't what no so i was just like let's minimize the weight maximize my opportunity although i guess it doesn't really help that i would still come late to class all the time so i feel like yeah little jordan really did say like fuck the police yeah fuck the school system (laughs) i wasn't yeah that's that's another story for another time (laughs) Because <laughs> I can't, I, we could dive deep into that, but we'll save that for later. Maybe. Do you have any stresses or? Uh, bleh, do you have any distresses or liberations to share? Stresses or liberations. Oof. Um, if you want some time to think about it, I can share mine because I did think about this before we hopped on. Yeah, I actually didn't think about it because I forgot that that was a thing that we do. Cute. Okay, so my distress for this moment is that I had a splitting headache and um, I think it was just because I hadn't eaten. Yeah. So I have some food. Eating is annoying if I'm going to be hella real. I just, I enjoy eating. I just hate the act of having to consume. I'm just like, you know, it's like, it's like a car always needs gas. Like, why does my body always need food? I enjoy it. You know, I just, I am team IV. Honestly, if I could just IV the nutrients that I need and avoid eating, if that was an option, I would significantly consider it. Not because I don't enjoy eating, but because I just don't enjoy the process of having to eat in order to rejuvenate energy-wise. Would you eat just for pleasure when you felt like it then? Yes. I can get on board with that. There's some days where I just feel like I don't have time. And then you know what? I don't eat, which is not entirely healthy. Exactly. 
And it's like, look, <laughs> I understand that I need energy. I understand that my body needs resources, but I'm not in the mood to chew. Like that's not, no, no, no. I'll make so, you a smoothie sometime. Yeah. And then my liberation, I had thought about this a little while ago and I'm like, oh, okay. This wasn't the liberation that I thought of, but I thought of another liberation. So I have been playing around with um, makeup, with eyeliner because, um, I mean, not because of anything, because I want to, but I am like getting better at, I bought a bunch of uh, solid, like water activated eyeliners that I've been like practicing with and playing around with. And I'm like starting to get a little bit more complicated with the stuff that I'm doing. And usually I only do eye makeup on the weekends because I work with kids during the weekend. It's just not practical. Like I'm running around, I get sweaty. I'm like doing stuff. It like just not, not the mood, not the place, not the time kind of thing. But on the weekends, I'm a little bit less frantic. Um, so it makes a little bit more sense. And I have a little bit more time on my hands to be able to play around with it. And um, I like, I have two friends that I like send a lot of my looks to. And one of them, he was just like, that is like, like not that what you've been doing isn't good, but like, this is really fucking good. And I was just like, ah, thank you. Um, and I don't know if that's a liberation, but it was a peak emotional experience. Hell yeah. I love that. That's amazing. Yeah. Hmm. What about you? My, I think my biggest stress is that I feel like my plate is very full of a lot of things. Um, they're all really exciting and amazing things, but like, I need a day off, you know, <laughs> like I just need a day off by myself to just chill. And I don't know when that's going to be and that's okay. Um, but my liberation is that I'm working on so many amazing projects with so many creative people and like all the things that I've just been manifesting for the past two years are coming into fruition, which is amazing. Uh, I just wrote, I, so I work on a little bit of music on the side as well too. And I'm trying to figure out how to make that and do stuff with that. Um, and I just got sent a beat by a friend of a friend, uh, a beat that, to write onto. And then I got super stoked about it. And I wrote a whole song in like 20 minutes on my way home. And I was yeah. feeling super inspired. And I, I just love when that happens because it just feels like channeling. Like, I don't know where it's coming from. I don't know what's going on. Didn't even know those feelings were inside me at that given moment. But then when you do it, especially when it's such a fast experience, that's just so concise and smooth. Oh, you just feel so good and like empty and released and clear after it. And I just mm. love that feeling. And so if I could feel that forever and I could do that forever and keep making, um, projects with amazing creative people, that would be, that'd be the dream. I love that. That's so exciting. Yeah. I'm excited. Look at you artist doing <laughs> the art. I said it and now I'm doing it. <laughs> I love, I love. What are we talking about today, Gaylin? Well, our topic for today is intersectionality. So what that looks like for myself, what that looks like for you um, in regards to our personal experiences, as well as intersectionality and how it kind of separates community and also builds community at the same time. 
And we have an amazing book reference for today for people that want to learn a little bit more about intersectionality and racism and how it affects our world and what we can do about it. Amazing. I love that. And uh, I think to give a really great foundation of intersectionality is to talk about its origin. And Mm. for those of you who don't know, intersectionality as a term was originally coined by Kimberly Williams Crenshaw, and that was in 1989. And what the term intersectionality does is it's an analytical framework for understanding how aspects of a person's social and political identities combine to create different modes of discrimination and privilege. And the two key identities that Kimberly Crenshaw was focusing on when talking about intersectionality was sex and race. And in the primary study that she was showcasing, it was talking about how there was a different, the rule set of discrimination that someone will experience based on whether they're male or female has its own set of like it manifests in a certain way. And then how somebody experiences whether they're white or black manifests in a certain way. And a lot of times it wasn't being taken into consideration the overlapping discrimination that someone can experience when they're at, when they're not in the dominant culture for a certain identity. So in this example, somebody who is black will receive discrimination while somebody who's white will have privilege and then somebody who's female will have will experience discrimination and somebody who is male will have privilege and with those two identities overlapping somebody who is both black and female will receive or experience compound discrimination based off of both of those identities intersecting with each other so that's where the foundation of this term comes from And I love that since that term was coined, it's expanded to mean so many other intersections, basically. Like, I would say that now intersectionality would include include amongst race and amongst your sex, but also race, ethnicity, socioeconomic class, your gender, age, language, religious beliefs, sexual orientation, nationality, abilities, and family structure. So there's a lot a lot more going on as we've kind of uncovered and found words to describe all the different ways in which we are. Yeah. So I think now that there has been so much advancement with Uh, different terms and different identities that people have brought to the forefront, intersectionality is now so much more encompassing than just those two original identities that uh, Kimberly Crenshaw was focusing on when the term was originally coined. And I think that's so important because as there are more identities that come to the forefront that we can really clearly see uh, the different modes of discrimination and privilege that people along those scales of identities experience, it exponentially showcases the disparity that people will experience based on the different identities that they host as they navigate the world, which is really important because none of those identities operate in a silo. Oftentimes, people might talk about something and say, oh, well, you know, you have this identity. So like, you don't have to worry about things. And it's like, okay, that's a one identity of, you know, 17 that I may have that significantly affects an interaction that I have based on the fact that 
I have maybe three or four of those identities give me privilege, yet I experience discrimination in the others, right? Um, and that complex combination of identities and how they manifest in an interaction is what dictates how people experience intersectionality in their day-to-day. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because we know that there are certain identities that are fully in privilege. For example, if you're a cisgender, heterosexual, white male in the world, And then we do know that there are identities that are fully discriminated against and marginalized. For example, if you're a trans feminine, black, queer person. Um, But then there are so many intersecting identities in between that where you're constantly grappling between having and not having privilege in different areas and components and aspects of your life. And those are the ones that I feel like there's a lot of disparity and argument around because there's no clear this person has the most privilege and this person has the least privilege like with those previous identities I mentioned there's so much nuance and complications and complexities around all that so yeah yeah, I find it super fascinating yeah do we want to get into a little bit of like how we identify and our personal experiences with intersectionality just because the two of us do have so many varying intersecting identities and we can talk about what what those identities have meant to us and in our life and share a little bit about the experiences that we've had. Yeah, Uh, I know for myself, one of the things that I personally share about how I experience the world is that there's visible identifiers and there's invisible identifiers. And some Mm -hmm. of those can be changed, some of those are fixed. And I know for myself, the first identifier that I experienced in my life without a shadow of a doubt was race. I'm black. I exist in the world as black. I'm not like pitch black, but I am dark skin. And there's no way for me to avoid experiencing that in my day-to-day world. Like it's unavoidable. The first thing that most people, not that it like notices, but that interaction, that exchange is unavoidable. And Growing up in so-called Vancouver, there aren't a lot of other Black people, and therefore I don't see myself represented within my geographical community. So, you know, aside from my family members, my immediate family, my whatever extended family was close by, uh, close family friends, things like that, that circle had a, a very concentrated amount of other Black people, and that was amazing. But I would say within my like geographical um, parameters growing up, I was often the only Black person. And I think that that experience was very, I guess, eye-opening for me. It was my first experience of understanding, oh, like, I am not a part of the dominant culture here, like, visibly. And I think... If I reflect on it a lot more, I could probably highlight some instances where I was probably discriminated against. However, I would say at that point, I wasn't really aware of what discrimination could possibly look like at that point. For maybe when I was in my like teen years, that wasn't necessarily a focus of mine because I was dealing with my queer identity, which is what something I would coin as a potential invisible identifier because that doesn't necessarily show up on the surface. And so I think, you know, being Black and being queer 
or and choosing whether I wanted to adopt a queer identity or not um, was really tough for me in my um, adolescent years, which is why I chose not to come out until I had graduated because I had already experienced enough disparity existing in a black body that I was like, I don't necessarily want to put myself through another process of having to navigate a marginalized identity when I still am having trouble and like going through a lot of hurdles of navigating, literally being the only black person within my general sphere and dealing with, you know, microaggressions, dealing with inappropriate behavior that comes with that. And so that was, that was, that was honestly the biggest reason why I didn't come out earlier. And then as I navigated through adopting my queer identity, I think it was a process of really unweaving a lot of the societal programming against people that weren't heterosexual. And I think there is an increasing amount of representation that's happening in media now, which is great and amazing. And I think that we can see the benefits of that through the youth and the children that we see coming up now who are adopting um, queer identities at a much younger age and having a lot more of themselves rooted in that, um, which is amazing and which is necessary. But I think for me specifically, uh, there wasn't very many Black queer people that I could see within my general sphere, within media, that I could really resonate with, which made that transition really hard. However, I am extremely fortunate because my two best friends at the time were both queer and one of them was Black and queer. So that really helped to ease that transition, although it didn't, there was still so much internalized phobia that I had to work through that even having close proximity to people that matched my identity didn't mean that I was absolved of having to navigate that. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I have a question if you, you don't have to answer it if you don't want to, but uh, what, what about being black and queer is like a specific, yeah. Is a specific experience to being black and queer? Is it just the compounding of two marginalized identities that you know are marginalized or is there like any specific nuances within the Black community towards queerness that you would be able to talk about? Yeah, I mean, I think that there is some nuance in that. I'm not well-versed to speak on this, but I'll speak on what I know of at least. And a trigger warning for sexual assault coming up here. But I think one of the things that is unique with someone that has a Black, queer, and male identity is within that community um, is the generational homophobia that exists because of ancestral trauma. And a lot of that stems from the use of sexual violence against enslaved men as punishment for wrongdoing when Black people that were enslaved were often treated in, in those types of situations and how that's trickled down into how people respond to Black queer men in general. And, you know, s- uh, sexual violence was typically weaponized and used by slave owners um, against enslaved people, which was often used on the men. The women and children weren't necessarily exempt, but it was, it was typically utilized against male enslaved people who were seen as defiant 
and that process um, involved slave owners enforcing enslaved men to subject themselves to sexual violence and physical violence in an attempt to instill fear in other enslaved people to prevent further rebellion. And that was something that was regularly practiced. And those experiences, that that trauma experience and that that perception has been passed down. And I think that there can be a lot of unconscious and innate resistance to or or tension when you come across a black queer male because of what that potentially means or what that subconsciously is communicating to other black men. And I think that that is a unique experience. And and the effects of that process is to emasculate men in front of the other people that they care about. So the idea of somebody actively being or associating with something that would is akin to emasculating them within that community is like something that the black community has to like really unravel and I guess like rewrite as a perspective because that's not necessarily the case at all when somebody has those identifiers. It just, it just really goes to show like how generational trauma really, how long it affects for and how it reacts to and informs the way that people act in a present day, just knowing that that's where like the hypermasculinity comes from and the internalized homophobia and just fear of the unknown is just so informative. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then I think the only other thing that I would add to my exploration of identity is in the last little while I've been exploring uh, how I express my gender and the reason why I adopted a non-binary pronoun is because I think a lot of what I had to do within my like 20s although I'm only 31 so I don't know how <laughs> like two years ago um, age is but a number it is truly but I would say like time is a construct the, it is a lie the cake is a lie um <laughs> but yeah I would say after I had gone through the process of really integrating my queer identity, I think for navigating the like integration of my queer identity and navigating how to move through the world with a black body were both things that correlated to my survival, right? In the sense that like from like navigating the world in a black body, that's a safety thing. And then navigating the world through a queer identity, that's like from, like for me personally, it's like an authenticity thing. Like, can I bring my most authentic self to the table? But then navigating how I want to express my gender was really just like expansion on that because. It feels deeply personal, like gender. Yeah. It's who you are when there is no one else there. Really. And I think that the only reason why I was able to go and explore that was because I was rooted in the other identities that were so significant to me before that, Mm -hmm. right? Like, I don't think I would have had the capacity to explore gender had I not rooted myself in my queer identity. And I don't think I would have been able to explore gender had I not resolved how to navigate the world in a Black body, right? Like, I feel like, though, for me, those two things really had to be stabilized before I could 
even consider navigating that because there were just there was just no capacity for it. Um, so when I felt you know rooted enough and safe enough to start exploring that, I was like, okay, like now I've got a really like completely radicalized how I think about and I I don't really think radicalized because I think having a queer identity helps you and break out of that binary and I was already kind of I was along that trend anyways but I just it wasn't explored it was more um responsive or reactive instead of intentional and so my ability to be able to explore gender and just start to get expansive with that is where I'm at now um, which I'm so grateful for. But I think personally, one of the big trigger points that really brings that into fruition is early in my like adolescent years, um, you know, you call a home phone, which like people probably don't know exists anymore. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you call someone on the home phone and, you know, mom or dad's not there. So you answer. And, you know, my mom always taught me if I'm not there, you can either leave it. If you know the number, answer it. And if you don't know the number, then you can answer it or you can leave it. But if you leave a message, just like take it down. There's an Obed Pyre um, phone all the time. So I'd always answer the phone. And often people would mistake me for my mom because of my voice. And uh, that was, I would say like, that was the, that was probably like the first pebble on like something of like, oh, like maybe there's, maybe I can perceive things outside of just this gender that I've been told of like, no, like you're a man, like you're a boy, like you have to do this, that, and the other, this is your structure. This is what you exist in. And it's like, I don't think so, but okay. Um, It's interesting because you were talking about like fixed identities and then um, not fixed identities before. And there are certain ones that are like pretty well fixed unless you're a white passing person of color such as race but then there seems to be ones that are like could be unfixed or fixed depending on how you play into like stereotypes and like stereotypes are an unfortunate thing because obviously with certain identities such as like gender and sexual orientation like there shouldn't be any signifiers because you can look and act and do whatever you want within those constructs. But yeah. unfortunately, there are those stereotypes that do kind of allow people to think about you in within those constructs, whether you are or aren't them or want to openly be them or not. So it's like, yeah. it's almost like an unfixed identity, but at the same time, people were kind of seeing you in this fixed identity, maybe before you were ready to explore it yourself. Exactly. And that's, that's essentially where it was for me because it wasn't, there was no autonomy with being able to have that identity. Right. Like I wasn't able to own that. It was somebody putting that on me instead Mm -hmm. of being like, no, like actually like that really irritated me when I was a kid. I was like, no, as I grew older, I was like, Hey, well, let's explore this. Like now that I have that capacity, like I can explore this. And what I really resonated about what you said is that, you know, some identities are fixed and some are not fixed, but I think some of them appear fixed to people who are susceptible to the, the conditioning of society. Right. So when, if you're, if you're operating under the um, susceptibility of the stereotypes that are perpetuated, then you think those things are fixed, right? You think that every like queer person has gay voice, right? Absolutely. And, and uh, like so many of those underlying stereotypes you think are fixed. And then 
that's when you come across people that are shocked that like, you know, a queer person can like, a black queer person can still like basketball. You're like, <laughs> actually, those are two completely independent things. Of course. <laughs> they don't, that's such an, you know what I mean? so interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And like, there's honestly positives and negatives to not appearing in a certain way or yeah. not appearing stereotypically because it's like, if you don't identify with that group, but follow certain stereotypes of that group, it can be hard for you to navigate and be able to express that you are not in those group, not for like a bad reason, but you're just like, no, that I, that's not how I feel, or that's not who I'm attracted to or whatever. But it can also be hard if you're, for example, if you are a black queer person who loves basketball and is very stereotypically masculine, uh, there's an erasure that happens and you are, have a hard time connecting with your own community because you don't show it on the outside. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's interesting because it's the, it's, there's so many goods and bad qualities to both on both sides of that situation, whether you identify with a group and you look like you identify with a group or you identify with a group and you don't, or you don't identify with a group, but you look like you identify with a group. Like, yeah. Yeah. It can be, it can be like a lot for people to work through in their brains. It's not the best. <laughs> what we're saying is society is trash. fucked. Yeah. <laughs> trash society garbage. Fucked sometimes. It's Recycle a it, Vom on it. Vomit on it. You know, <laughs> put it through a blender, put it down the drain. Exactly. That's what we need. Um, I've talked a lot. Can you, you want to share about your identifiers and experience yeah yeah I would love to um I think I have talked a lot about my sexuality coming out experience and how my gender and my sexuality kind of compound onto each other and my fears about coming out as trans because I was gonna like it was gonna so-called be like too much and too many kind of marginalized and I marginalized identities like you were talking about in um the previous seasons podcast in the season one podcast that I'm featured in Mm -hmm. um so I would love to talk about a little bit more about race and if people want to hear more of my coming out story and like my transness then maybe they can pop over there I'll get into it super briefly and how more so how it connects to my race I think um and what that looks like for me but yeah if people want to hear the full story it'll be on the season one podcast which was amazing, by the way. I oh, just want to chime in and say, because I did listen to that. And I this <laughs> was before you. I knew you. And I was just like, finger snaps the entire way, because I really resonated with a lot of what you're sharing about, um, you know, the overlap, overlapping marginalization, uh, marginalized identities, and how that really plays a role in... I, I mean, I shared it earlier with my coming out experience. Like, I didn't feel like I could really talk about or really navigate that because of the identifier that I already had that I was navigating. So mm-hmm. yeah, props to you on that. Thank you so much. Yeah. I think with, um, with race and being of Asian descent and also being mixed descent. So uh, my background is that I'm half Asian. I'm half Cantonese from Hong Kong. Uh, and then I'm half an amalgamation of white stuff on my dad's side. Um, (laughs) It's just, it's an interesting place to be intersectionality wise, because I will go into rooms of 
other Chinese folks and really not feel like I belong there or feel like I'm Chinese enough to be in that space because I don't look quite Chinese enough or I don't speak the language. Um, for example, like my grandmother speaks a village dialect called Toisan that's very similar to Cantonese and like doesn't speak very much English and I can't speak to her other than gesturing and very simple English words and very simple Cantonese words. So I, I will go to like, yeah, family dinners with my family and be sitting there and everyone will be talking in Cantonese and I'll just be sitting there eating and just be like, I might as well be a white person at that point, even though I don't look like a white person. And I just get lumped into like the white people that are there because most of my uh, mom's family ended up marrying white because they were from a small town in Ontario and there was like no other Asian people there other than the ones that were related to them. Um, so that's an interesting place to be. And then when I go into a white centered space or might, some might call that the world that we live in. When I walk out my door, uh, it's not so, so bad for me in Vancouver because there are a lot of very Asian spaces, but you know, if I travel somewhere else or I'm in an area where there tends to be a lot of white people, I visually obviously don't pass as white either. So at that point, I, when I was younger, I was, I would ask myself like a lot of questions about, well, if I don't belong in this one community and I don't belong in this other community, then what community do I belong in? Mm -hmm. If kind of, you kind of feel like you don't have any sort of community. Yeah. And I wasn't really aware of how damaging that was until I was like a lot older. And I started talking to other mixed folks as well, who were saying just all the same things that I was thinking. And, and we were able to almost build our own sub community within these other two communities. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to talk about intersectionality and then marginalized identities and non-marginalized identities, because on paper, half of me in a way is white and therefore of the dominant culture but then half of me is not, and I do not look white enough to be of the dominant culture. Right. So that's, that's just so, yeah, it's just an interesting place to be. And I always found that so fascinating. Like when I was younger, I was just obsessed with Mulan because right. it was, we were talking, you were talking earlier about representation and how important that is. And like, as a kid, you don't even realize what's happening, but you just like, you innately want to latch onto something or someone that looks like you or yeah. feels like you. Yeah. So, you know, with Mulan and then <laughs> not even realizing until later, but like with the very queer trans narrative of that story. Yeah. And then on top of the fact that, you know, she was an Asian character, I was just obsessed. And I remember going to my mom and my dad being like, okay, if I'm half Asian now, I think I was like five years old. <laughs> if I'm half Asian now, does that mean when I'm fully grown, I'm going to be full Asian? Because in my mind, I knew that Mulan was full Asian and I really wanted to be full Asian. Right. <laughs> and my dad was like sad about that. <laughs> so it's like, you just don't realize these things that you say when you're younger until you have the words to vocalize them and vocalize the effects that they've had on you. Yeah. And then with, with, kind of my ethnicity and, and race and and all of the negative effects of racism and also with COVID, the rampant anti-Asian 
hate kind of crimes and, and racism that's happened. It's just been an interesting place to navigate because there's just a, it's like a, a newly violent turn to Asian racism. And I think a lot of Asian people, like older Asian people that I've talked to, family members and such like that, are so willing to downplay the severity of of Asian racism because it's not as bad as the racism that Black or Indigenous folks experience. Right. Because I've never, I've never, you know, been afraid of being in police presence other beyond like the obvious, you know, fear and anxiety because of my race. And yeah, when I have conversations with like older Asian folks about how like, it's still not that bad, it really boggles my mind because it's just interesting to see the blatant switch and the blatant change since COVID basically. And like the escalation and how quickly that's happened that has really shown me that all of the kind of like side remarks, jokes, um, that erasure of the fact that like Asians can be attractive main character roles and not just like nerdy sidekicks or the butt end of small penis jokes or things like that. I think the weight of how damaging those jokes have been for the majority of our lives and how quickly a joke can turn into violence because that's the way that people's brains are programmed Mm. was one of the most startling things for me. And honestly, something that I'm like still processing because even I'm inclined to downplay it and be like, you know, it's like not a lot of deaths. It's like mostly still jokes, but if the jokes are made, that's conditioning people's minds. Yeah, And I think that's the, that's the situation that I'm kind of grappling with and trying to like practice being honest about the severity to myself in order to be able to have the conversation with more people and also get older Asian generations to realize the severity because the amount that it is downplayed is like, is a little scary, especially if it escalates from here, from the situation that we're in right now. Yeah. I would also be interested of your opinion of how you think that's connected to like the conditioning of people being trained to downplay that type of thing as a response. You know what I mean? I think that partially it could be a, depending on the situation, it could be like a survival tactic for sure. I know that for myself, at least, I would often like downplay Black jokes for sake of preserving some semblance of a community that I had put together that I that was pretty much my only access to, you know, having connection with other people because I didn't really have those potential relationships. But like, I think that in this situation specifically, like the, the concept of responding to a harmful situation with downplaying the severity of it. Right. And like the, the intentional choice of taking that route. Yeah. I think that, it's it's definitely a preservation technique for sure because I mean I'm gonna use the example of like not necessarily a real life example, but if 
if there's a movie or a TV show that has, you know, a very stereotypically Asian character, and then maybe they're the butt end of the jokes or the butt end of, of a lot of the plot, it's still a movie that has an Asian character for representation in a way. So it's like, it's almost like we would prefer to be talked about in a derogatory manner than not not talked talked about about, at all. Because it's like, at least there's someone, at least there's someone that you can see on the screen that looks like you. And it's, it's definitely toxic, but it's like, at least, at least we got something. It kind of feels like that sort of situation. Yeah. Which is really like, it's abysmal because it's like, we deserve better and like all communities deserve better representation. Yeah. But it's, it's start, it starts somewhere. And honestly, things are changing and things are progressing, like with like the new Marvel movie and an Asian superhero to look up to with, um, you know, crazy rich Asians, like, and, and having like a very attractive Asian leading man who uh, people were really interested in and also the rise of k-pop and j-pop and uh f- like effeminate men because i feel like that's been the biggest butt end of the joke with a lot of like asian men and as far as attractiveness mm-hmm. uh would be just the effemininity of them and how that is not attractive but it seems like with queerness taking more of a center stage it's it's almost connected to that effemininity in men being more tolerated and accepted and Asian yeah. men have in the past been discriminated against for the effemininity because I think just our physical features are not as sharp and pronounced as a lot of other ethnicities and therefore yeah. we lack that like rigidity and like masculinity quote unquote that a lot of other people have in their like facial features and like muscular features like generally smaller stature generally shorter generally softer features mm was always seen as effeminate and and that is a lot of a lot of asian people's features right so yeah that's it's just an interesting and that was just interesting to see the shift of course absolutely and so where we kind of have like the kind of discrimination there i can't really talk about this topic without like acknowledging the fact that there's a how do i word this there's a a bit of chasing whiteness and wanting to emulate whiteness that's like very rampant in Asian cultures and in a lot of Asian cultures with, you know, skin bleaching directly staying away from the sun and tanning and like even plastic surgery and, and those types of procedures in uh, like Japan and Korea, it's very, very popular. Mm -hmm. So there is, has, is and has always been connection to wanting to emulate whiteness because we gain privilege from the fact that a lot of a lot of Asian people have lighter skin unless they tan. Right. And so there is a privilege to being like it's almost like a lot of Asian cultures and and not all because obviously like Southeast Asian people closer to the equator, uh, folks who can't afford to not be out in the sun, whether working or otherwise, there is a privilege that is gained from certain Asian communities because we're almost like just off the border of whiteness yeah. with our skin color, but not our physical features, not mm-hmm. our hair color or whatever, for example. But right. people are people do change those and people do try and change those to emulate whiteness and to gain status in, in that such a way. Yeah. That's wild. 
Yeah, it's so interesting. That leaning in towards femininity is where you lose, you like lose privilege. Yeah. Because it's almost like if you're, yeah, someone who is like, is AFAB and is leaning in towards a masculinity, like you do gain privilege from that in a way. Like me, yeah. for example, like there, I can't deny the fact and or not talk about the fact that I gain male privilege in a way. But if you're leaning into yeah, but you, you're but losing you, some male privilege. Yeah, but what's I think really interesting is that you gain privilege by increasing your proximity to maleness, but you lose privilege by increasing your proximity to queerness. Yeah, it's true. Unless you unless you gain not gain privilege, unless you pass. And there's like a lot of privilege that comes with passing, but also a lot of danger that comes with passing because it's almost like the straights are like, you've deceived me because you've done this too well. Nothing ever fucking satisfies you, does it? (laughs) (laughs) Not queer enough, too queer for you? (laughs) Not mask enough, too mask for you? Fuck. It's it's never enough. You, they will never be happy with us <laughs> ever. You're just always pissed off about something. I uh, cannot. The straights are not okay. I think a, an important thing to touch on too, with like being a person of color and and having that whatever racial and or ethnic identifiers coincide with your queerness is honestly, and what I'm unpacking and and learning about the history of is that a lot of anti-gay rhetoric and policy coming from a lot of bi POC communities is the creation and institutionalization of colonialism and basically religious constructs being forced on and you being used to oppress different people. Yeah. Because I, I don't I don't know too much about black history in this specific regard but with a lot of Asian history, Catholicism and or Christianity was brought to a lot of these places and generationally created a lot of the anti-gay feelings Mm -hmm. and anti-gay practices that are now super instilled in a lot of these countries. And I think it's really easy for Western countries to blame a lot of these countries or to think of them as less than or to think of them as third world countries because they're not as upkept with our ideals and our thoughts on queerness and openness and sexuality and all these things. But it's really important for us to remember that whiteness, colonialism, and religious missionaries are the reason behind those practices being so instilled and ingrained in communities of other color, because they there's a lot of history and a lot of information you can access about how these colonies were built and about how these people interacted with queerness and practiced queerness prior to these colonies being forced and oppressed onto them. Oh, absolutely. And I think what's ironic is that before now, communities were uh, shunned or like put down or thought of lesser than for not having, you know, a Eurocentric way of operating. And now we're seeing that countries are being shot down or um, thought lesser than because they don't have as diverse as a, of a, 
culture or like way of living as like a more the, like, a quote unquote Western pro- progressive culture or yes. ideals. Which is comp- like, I just think it's so wild because it's like, had you not touched any of these cultures that you thought were inferior to you, we would have a much richer spectrum of culture just in general because you didn't yeah. colonize everybody. And I think a much more open and diverse viewpoint on a lot of these issues as well. I agree. Um, So Gayla, what can people do to help get clarity on their identities and how they intersect and how to navigate potential situations or uh, of like external situations of like interacting with other people or just internal situations of how to clarify and and have stronger understanding of their own identity markers and how that correlates i think a really amazing thing that people can do is to just educate themselves on the basics of their identities and other people's identities as well as to gain the knowledge and vocabulary needed to express those thoughts and opinions so really just finding the words, engaging with words and learning about what these words kind of mean when we break them down, as well as to sit with themselves and either like journal or just think within their heads of all of their varying identities that we've kind of have talked about throughout this podcast and think about the ways in which those can positively and negatively impact each other themselves and their communities. That's a really good place. I think it's really always good to start activism and anti-racism within yourself and to unpack how you move through the world and how you interact through the world just based on what you look, feel like, or identify as, because that's going to really inform a lot of aspects that have to do with activism and anti-racism such as, you know, mitigating your safety when interacting with certain events, uh, mitigating how you can use your privileges to assist and create barriers in order to keep others safe, other marginalized people safe, and to just understand how your intersectioning identities interact with someone else's intersectioning identities, where you can come together, where there are differences, and to make space and room for knowledge and for teaching and for community within those similarities and differences. Mm -hmm. Did you want to talk about uh, the resource that, that we use for a lot of this podcast and a lot of understanding further or breaking down further our own personal identities or um, how other people can break down their identities because you lent me this amazing book and it was so helpful in researching for this podcast, but also just sitting down with myself and having a further understanding of where I'm at and who I am and how I feel and my place within the world and within being a better, more well-rounded person within the world. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So one of the biggest resources that we utilized for this podcast is 
a book called This Book is Anti-Racist, 20 Lessons on How to Wake Up, Take Action, and Do the Work by Tiffany Joel, who is a Black biracial writer, parent, and Montessori educator who has been doing the work of dismantling white supremacy for about 14 plus years. The book is also illustrated by Aurelia Durand, who is a French graphic artist based in Paris. And this book is really amazing for giving you all the foundational tools and resources that you need to understand your identity, understand how your identities intersect with each other, understand how your identities correlate with you as an individual, with the people that are around you, with your communities that you're a part of, and how you can actively utilize that information to take action and start making the change that you want to see in those spaces and, and really flourish and take that elementary step in your activism work. Amazing. The book is also just a fantastic resource for being your first step into a lot of dialogue and a lot of maybe words that you don't know in regards to intersectionality and different people's identities. Um, So it's got a thesaurus at the end of it that explains or sorry not at the source it's got a dictionary at the end of it uh, that explains a lot of the words that are commonly used within the book that are a lot of identifiers that maybe people who don't specifically identify with certain identifiers maybe they won't know exactly what they mean and there's a lot of it's just written in a way that's a good first step if you've never heard of a lot of these words or concepts before because it's very concise um and very laid out in a kind of a chronological way that will make sense to a lot of people if this is their very first intro into any sort of anti-racist or activist type work. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Uh, well, yeah. Thank you so much for carving time out of your wonderful lives to share in this experience with us and we look forward to having you listen to the next episode that's it hey thanks for sticking around if you're interested in learning more about qcc you can check out our website www.queercommunitycollective.com here you can find links to our instagram and facebook if you're interested in attending an event subscribing to our newsletter, or just want to connect, email us at folks, that's F-O-L-X, at queercommunitycollective.com. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to our channel and share it with your friends, your crush, and that homophobic uncle you see every Christmas. It might just be what he needs. Either way, we're here for you. Have a gay day!